0: The Retrograde Approach, Episode Twelve Acute Limb Ischemia. Yogi, it's that time again. Where we record a podcast episode.
1: <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good, Sam. Um, Sam Farah, the Tibular Hunter. What? What's? Um, what are we talking about tonight?
0: Yeah, you, know, you were expecting another flamboyant, over-the-top introduction, and I, I'm just not going to let you have it. I'm just not going to let you do it to to our to our audience.
1: They deserve better than that. Look, uh, the the list the listeners of the podcast are. Uh, <laughs> precious bunch we love them dearly and uh they they love they just, you know they just want to know more about the adventures of the tibial hunter
0: i'll ignore the fact that you called our audience precious for a moment yogi
1: okay acute limit schema
0: yogi this is this is i wouldn't say quite say our bread and butter but it, it certainly accounts for a large amount of our uh, day-to-day workload and uh certainly It's fair to say there's a fair variety of presentations. You've got patients who rock up whose limbs are threatened, but you can set tight and then you've got patients who rock up with an ischemic leak. And in some instances, it can actually be a life-threatening event and in some more severe cases, it's actually an end-of-life event. So a lot to unpack uh, in this week's episode, Yogi, but when when you get a referral or call about acute limb ischemia, what are sort of some of the basic things, that you sort of start to think, think of.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Sam. And I think, um, you know, if I can take you back just one, one quick minute just to sort of go through um, acute limb ischemia and what it actually means, it means that there's been a sudden deterioration in the arterial supply to a limb, whether that's of the upper or lower limb. And commonly uh, we see issues typically affecting the lower limb um, with Broad causes, including embolic and thrombotic causes. Um, when someone presents uh, with acute limb ischemia, um, this is this requires urgent assessment and then subsequent uh, determination and management depending on the severity of their presentation. Now, Sam, when. When we think of potential causes for acute limb ischemia, and as I mentioned at the start, broadly they can be divided into both embolic and thrombotic causes. Embolic causes themselves can be divided into um, cardiac and non-cardiac causes. So the broad, um, within the cardiac causes, we typically can have emboli arising from the atria or ventricle can be paradoxical arising from the venous system or potentially from endocarditis as well. Non-cardiac causes of embolic presentations can include atherombolic causes or aortic mural thrombus. When it comes to thrombotic causes, thrombotic causes can arise from atherosclerotic obstruction, um, hypercoagulable states, uh, vasospasm, aortic dissection, and unfortunately, sometimes even bypass graft occlusions, which brings a tear to my eye uh, when that happens.
0: I don't know, Yogi. My, my, I never had a bypass go down, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, as as
1: a as a mentor I'm of mine not, once I'm told, not, I'm not cutting that out. <laughs> as a mentor of mine once told me, if you're not seeing it, you're not doing enough.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Yogi. <laughs>
1: now, um. part of the challenge um, is being able to not only determine what you think is the underlying etiology of the patient's presentation and then determine the appropriate management based on that but before we crack into that Sam, what sort of things do you try and elicit from the patient's history uh, when they do present with an acute limb presentation?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. There's actually uh, quite a bit that you need to consider. Um, The first... Thing and this really dictates the management is the severity of ischemia. So, apart from um, you know, obviously, I'll elaborate on this in a second when it began and the onset, you really want to get an idea early from the outset how impaired is the limb? Is this a purely a sensory problem? And this is we'll touch on the Rutherford classification in a minute, or is it significant um, motor dysfunction, which is quite a fairly advanced. Sign of uh, limb ischemia. But just going back a step, obviously, all those other things are important. You know, when it began, um, how long has the patient uh, waited at home before coming in? And also, has there been a preceding history of uh, previous um, peripheral vascular problems, i.e., has the patient claudicated previously, which I actually find quite an important piece of history, or have they otherwise been fairly fit and well? If they've been fairly fit and well and been able to walk for some time without any issues, it sort of tends to hint at a, at a more profound obstructive problem, such as an embolus, most commonly. Whereas, if they've been claudicating for some time, it tends to sometimes hint that there is, where well, you also alluded to, you know, a, throm- a potentially a thrombotic problem or what we would refer to as an in situ thrombosis, so a pre-existing plaque which is now potentially ruptured and occluded, or become critical and thrombosed on top of all that it's actually really quite important to keep the patient in mind so you know how fit is this patient for surgery because quite often many of these patients are fairly comorbid with complex medical issues is this a patient who's fit for an operation are they fit to be revascularized and potentially undergo the hemodynamic disturbance of revascularization are they at home? Is this a nursing home patient? Is this someone who's been previously ambulating or not? Those are the really big, big picture questions. And then some of those other nuanced things to consider are what anticoagulation was the patient on when it happened? Do you need to consider um, operating on the patient while they're on a NOAC? Um, yeah,
1: quite a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know the the only other thing I thought of the, as we were going through is and should be mentioned as a potential cause is aneurysmal disease and history of particularly of peripheral aneurysms yep. as they are a Absolutely. very important co- a very important cause of acute limb ischemia as well. Now um, one of the one of the things that you did stress on quite a lot in in that discussion was really about the duration of symptoms and um, just for our more junior registrar, Sam, why is the duration of symptoms important?
0: Well, a couple of reasons. One, you worry about irreversible tissue necrosis, nerve, ischemia, irreversible injury, uh, which can often be fairly disabling. You then worry about um, the re- the ischemia reperfusion injury, which can also be um, fairly destabilizing to the patient, can also be associated with a fairly significant compartment syndrome and therefore require... Um, fasciotomies and then you also, if the ischemia's been fairly pro- prolonged as well, you also worry about um, washback of CK, potassium, all those um, lactic acid, all those, all those nasties that build up in a in a ischemic muscle tissue that's been ischemic for some time. And you know, again, like you know where you work, Yogi, where you're a fairly, you're working in a fairly centralized referral centre. You know, I think you'd be thinking about all those things. If you get a call from out of town and a patient's coming down with a fairly profoundly ischemic leg, you'd be thinking, you know, what sort of toxins is this patient going to wash back once I reperfuse them?
1: Absolutely. And it's, um, it can be quite devastating, um, watching the impact of reperfusion, um, on a leg. And as I mentioned, not only the sort of systemic effects, but also the more local effects with, um, the uh, potential compromise of arterial flow through increases in compartment pressure. Once you've taken a, a really detailed history, like Sam used to do as a registrar. Not, um, not anymore, Yogi, not anymore. Now, now you're on the other end of the phone. Yep. Um, you then proceed to examining the patient. and um,
0: Don't do that anymore either, Yogi.
1: <laughs> you're, you're very fortunate. Um, But there are some classic signs when it comes to the physical examination of a patient presenting with acute limb ischemia. And um, and you all probably remember um, from medical school, the six P's of acute limb ischemia, pain, pallor, paresis, pulse deficit, paresthesia, and, and perishingly cold. And these are very important, especially those of you who are junior registrars and trainees, as you assess the patient, um, as you're trying to put it together. However, when you try and make sense of it all, there are some very basic uh, assessments of the patient that can help you come to your conclusion in terms of the degree of severity here. If the foot looks white and the so-called marble white, this is a significant presentation. The patient is profoundly ischemic. Um, if there's slow capillary refill, there may be some degree of distal flow. However, the uh, and the runoff is probably present. However, um, there's clearly an, a reasonable obstruction to flow. Um, sensation may be lost and the foot may be numb, um, but often there's um, a loss of the fine touch and proprioception, which should be assessed as part of your neurovascular examination. Um, muscle tenderness is a, good way of determining the degree of ischemia um, and the loss of peripheral pulses clinically uh, also adds to the whole clinical assessment of the patient um, in terms of the severity of their presentation as well. Um, At the end of the day, as Sam would say, if he was a stand, the end of bed test is uh, the best assessment when it comes to anyone in extremis. And when you're looking at someone um, and they don't look well and their leg doesn't look well, as you start to put it together, you can get a good idea of their severity of presentation um, and also uh, what potentially may have happened. Sorry, Yogi, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec. Something that always irked me about the six Ps.
0: So you've got someone who's coming with an ischemic leg. They've got pain. They've got paresthesia. They've got paralysis. But the limb's purple and mottled. And you go to blanch it. You press on the purple blotchiness, and you get nothing back. How do you how do you interpret that fighting?
1: Well, in that situation, I guess I'm worried that that's fixed staining of the leg, and that yep. uh, again would represent a severe degree of ischemia. I guess the six Ps are really to give you a, a broad framework to work with. They're not. It's not absolute. Um, yep. And I think. As I said, I think the end of bed test, when you look at the patient in completion, uh, you get a better idea of um, what's potentially going on. The, um, the, the purple that you potentially see is probably as a result of capillary dilatation that's occurred, um, you know, and whether that is truly um, something that's reversible or not is, is then questionable. Um, And in particular, when you get into the more terminal stages of skin ischemia, um, where you've got extravasation of blood and capillary disruption, um, you may potentially get no blush at all. Um, And so this is where it gets reasonably um, frightening in terms of the, the degree of presentation and the potential subsequent outcomes for the patient. Yep. Um, typically, with acute limb presentations, it's the sensory nerves that get affected first. And so the loss of sensation is one of the earlier signs, but um, motor nerves are next, then skin, and finally muscle. And so, really, as I mentioned earlier, if you've got muscle tenderness, this is really reflective of a reasonably advanced stage of ischemia itself. Um, and so, Sam, you mentioned earlier um, when. People try and communicate the severity of acute limb ischemia, they may they use the Rutherford classification system. Uh, could you talk to us broadly about it and how you use it in your practice? So, essentially, um,
0: the way I use it, Yogi, is basically Rutherford 1, these are patients who are A, potentially well collateralized and they've had an event that's rendered them ischemic, but they've returned to their baseline. Or the other presentation I've seen is um, they've had an embolus and the embolus is fragmented and they've basically even actually turned it with pulses. They may have reported at some stage their limb was ischemic, but rather for one, generally, um, uh, limb is actually not threatened and the patient's asymptomatic. 2A, this is patients who have sensory dysfunction and these are patients that should be taking the theatre on the next available list all within 24 hours so patient turns up overnight you can safely heparinize them and then operate on them the next morning 2b this is where we sort of start to get a bit more concerned and they sort of have all the other features but now you also add in uh, paralysis and so you have nerve or muscle and or muscle dysfunction plus minus a degree of tenderness i think yogi once they get that muscle tenderness that's really sort of the time where you're sort of thinking okay yeah, person probably needs to go to theater soon. And at that stage, you're sort of starting to mobilize an operating theater to um, try to revascularize the patient. Three, uh, this is really what I was alluding to earlier, yogi, basically irreversible limb ischemia. You've got loss of audible arterial and venous doppler f- signal. You've got fixed staining. You've got frank paralysis. In, in even some very late stages, you have complete muscle rigidity, and even on passive movements, you can't even flex or or move the ankle. And at that stage, you've really got a non-salvageable limb and the conversation should really turn towards amputation or
1: palliation. Yes, thanks, Sam. I think that's a great summary of um, the Rutherford classification Um, However, I do caution um, its use um, just in terms of the level of comfort junior registrars and trainees may have in trying to categorise a patient in terms of their degree of ischemia. Often um, it's easier just to describe the clinical findings that you've made during your assessment, as this can often best reflect the severity of presentation alone Um, and especially now being on the other side, listening to presentations of, um, of acute limbs, um, having something described as a 2A and then having symptoms that are much more severe than that is actually uh, can make that conversation rather difficult. Um, so my, in my humble opinion, I think the best way to approach the description of a clinical presentation of acute limb ischemia would be to describe what you see in front of you, and what your assessment is. Um, And then as you get more comfortable with understanding the broad strokes of the Rutherford classification, you can then uh, start introducing that into your practice. And that that I think will give you much more um, comfort in terms of how you uh, manage these patients. Um, And that's just something that I I seem to have reflected on, especially in the short time that I've been uh, out as a consultant. Don't be too... Dogmatic? Is that what you're saying, Yogi? Absolutely. I think that's fair. I think um, you know, there, there. You know, I think you've, you've just got to, especially for junior registrars. I think there's a lot to be said from just your clinical assessment of the patient, um, rather than trying to categorise acute limb ischemia into a category just so that you sound, um, you sound awesome over the phone. <laughs> So, there's probably, there's also
0: probably a group of patients who, who kind of fall somewhere in between yogi who may present yeah. with acute rest pain. Yes. And I've seen some of those patients they actually, they sort of present with acute rest pain. They get sat on for a couple of days. And then after sitting on the ward for 24 to 48 hours waiting for, a theater session, they can actually deteriorate quite rapidly and then start to develop um, muscle dysfunction, tissue necrosis, gangrene, and things can rapidly deteriorate on the ward. I'm not really sure where they've sort of fit in in terms of Rutherford classification, but I've certainly seen that as a presentation and that's usually associated with um, an incitual thrombosis as well or some progression of pre-existing disease.
1: Yeah, I guess somewhere in the 2A, 2B spectrum. And I think what you're reflecting on there, Sam, is the fact that acute limb ischemia is really, truly a spectrum of presentation um, and people can progress. Um, Saying that, though, um, I think constant reassessment of the patient uh, with some um, sort of purview into looking at symptom progression is always vital uh, despite the commencement of therapeutic anticoagulation. And so constant review of the patient is probably mandated and in particular for those who um, have got reasonably severe presentations. And I think that that's the way I approach that particular issue. So, Yogi, um, you're on call again,
0: as is the status quo potentially where you work. Just kidding. Um, so, Yogi, you're on call again. You've got another call, another ischemic leg. The house surgeon has rung you up. And said, uh, "Dr. Sivakumar, and I've got another, Rutherford for two A League down here. What, um, I guess, what sort of investigations would you start with, and potentially what are the sort of key questions you might ask your registrar um, before actually working that out?"
1: Yeah. So my my initial thoughts here are to it would be. Um, So typically I would start with reasonably non-invasive investigations. And uh, my first line would be to get some baseline blood tests. Uh, So I would begin with a full blood count, looking for evidence of anemia and infection, electrolyte urea and creatinine, particularly to determine the patient's baseline renal function, uh, coagulation profile, particularly if they've been on some form of anticoagulation in the lead up to their presentation. And I do like to ask for a CK um, and I do this really as a means of uh, getting a feel for whether there's any evidence of muscle death um, to work out and to help assist in terms of trying to determine the degree of ischemia. The other thing that I do like to ask for is a venous blood gas lactate as well. Um, Old
0: school, Yogi, old school.
1: Nothing but. (laughs) (laughs) smelling butt Um, and and I like to put all that information together uh, in terms of how do I determine um, their severity together with their clinical presentation now when it comes to determining the second line of investigations for this patient um, if um, if I'd get an ECG and I, I guess if there's any suggestion of any um, arrhythmia t-wave inversion sd elevation or depression then i also often get troponins as well for these patients on presentation as that could fit in with the broader picture for why this patient has come in so if the clinical history fits and they may have some chest symptoms and there's some ecu changes then i get troponins at this time but i don't often do them on spec okay with, then I move on to my third line of investigations, and this is to try and define the RTL tree. Now, uh, in acute presentations, um, typically my imaging modality of choice would be a CT angiogram of the lower limbs, and typically from the diaphragm down, if I was concerned that they may potentially be um, other potential differentials such as aneurysmal disease that could also fit within the picture, then um, I would also consider more proximal imaging. However, I don't necessarily routinely check, um, image the chest in the first instance and may do it subsequently. Okay. Pres- bad kidneys? If they've got bad kidneys, um, I would consider whether I'm able to prehydrate them, at least get half a liter in, depending on the severity of their renal impairment. Uh, say, um, stage three chronic di- kidney disease, I would consider pre them and still attempting a CTA, given that the volume of contrast that's now used for CTA angiography is not as high as it once was. Um, however, with those with much more severe renal function, of course, CTA becomes a much more difficult um, issue. If I'm able to get an ultrasound, an arterial duplex in the emergency department, or if I'm able to perform one, then I'd consider doing that as my potential alternate form of imaging. However, mm. however, again, this may potentially not be feasible. In which case, um, the the best option in this situation would be to assess the need for intervention and consider on-table angiography to limit the contrast dose at the time of the intervention.
0: Okay, I think uh, I think all that's pretty reasonable i think yoga probably would echo a lot of what you said there but i think most vascular surgeons would feel that the ct angiogram is a fairly um standard but also reliable and useful investigation uh first line for acute limb ischemia would you agree with that
1: yeah, definitely. And I think the re- uh, there are many reasons for this, but the, 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 the most common reason is because it provides a much more descriptive um, representation of not only uh, the manager of vascular surgery, inflow, aflow, and everything in between. But, told you you were old-fashioned, Yogi. <laughs> but it also allows for a, a very good um, ability to plan your operative approach in terms of dealing with the patient themselves. Yep. And so Sam, you've cracked on and got your investigations done. What is, are sort of the initial management strategies you might undertake?
0: I think just some of the very basic things, Yogi start a heparin infusion, um, start some IV fluids, keep the patient fasted, consent the patient, have a discussion about what's involved. Uh, I think. Some of the important questions I ask the patient, apart from all those other things I talked about earlier, such as are you walking, where do you live, are you at home, are you independent, I think a really important question is to ascertain, especially if you suspect that the patient may become more unwell later on, um, especially if it's really more advanced ischemia, is if, if it looked like you needed an amputation through this hospital admission, is that something you would want us to do. And I think that's really important to establish, especially, you know, if patients is intubated in ICU, they get a huge washback, they've got rhabdo, their kidneys are going off and you have to make a decision. It's really helpful and useful to know what their wishes are f- from the outset. Have you ever thought about doing that or do you ever do that, Yogi?
1: Yeah, look, I, I must be very honest with you. I paint a very bleak picture um, every time I... put. Pr- progress any patients to an operation with acute limb ischemia. And as you, bo- as we both know, we've been burnt in the situation where we find something unexpected, or we actually end up finding that some of the thrombus um, or embolus within a lower limb is more chronic than acute, which adds to the further complexity of actually dealing with their subsequent acute presentation. Um, so I think I, uh, I often paint a very poor picture from the get-go, not only because of the potential issues associated with intervention and not only limb loss, but the subsequent whole body um, impact that can occur as a result of um, acute limb presentations. Yeah. I feel like there was a second part of that question that I didn't actually answer, Yogi. That's okay. That uh, The second part... Wasn't really of any relevance, but we can always go back and figure it out.
0: <laughs> I think you asked me how I use my imaging to work out what I'm
1: go- going to do. Let's just make let's just make that the second part.
0: Well, I think you know the, the the next question is why has it occurred? And as we said earlier, most causes are either embolic or thrombotic. If it's an embolus, you're doing an embolectomy, and almost always I try well. The management of this in my institution is basically hybrid so i'm either doing a femoral or pop or embolectomy with an angiogram to work out what the runoff is to ensure that you've got adequate flow down to the foot plus minus fasciotomies depending how ischemic the leg is if it's thrombotic i'm either going to do a thrombectomy plus minus stent if there's residual disease or i'm planning the patient uh, or informing the patient there's a fairly good chance that they're going to need a bypass to um, uh, salvage their limb. In terms of um, some of those other causes, and I guess you know we talked about a lot about this in the um, uh, popliteal aneurysm um, podcast, Yogi, but if we're thinking it's a peripheral aneurysm that's caused trouble, we're either doing a thrombectomy, embolectomy to clear the outflow uh, plus minus potentially a degree of lysis and a bypass. I think probably all that's fairly standard, Yogi. I know I've called you old fashioned several times already this podcast, but I think potentially you know my approach to this is slightly old fashioned as well. You know these patients can be quite unwell. And you want something that's going to work fairly quickly and reliably. And while I think we both appreciate there's a fairly important role for endovascular options uh, for acute limb ischemia, I think, you know, you and I've learned that sometimes, um, uh, the fastest, uh, solution is sometimes also the most reliable, but unfortunately sometimes the most invasive
1: as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, um, there are some home truths when it comes to interventions of the lowland for acute limb ischemia. Um, and I think, what you're able to do in your institution will vary, but at the end of the day, what you, what is going to give the patient the best outcome and maintain their limb perfusion is probably the most helpful at the end of the day. Saying that, though, I think it's probably fair to say that endovascular techniques are becoming much more refined as we progress uh, each year, and um, particularly the role of pharma mechanical thrombectomy and... Um, is probably going to be the way of the future, more consistently perhaps, um, depending on the ability to deal with tibial vessels and outflow vessels um, in the context of acute limb presentations. Um, and, and, I, and I believe that more and more percutaneous interventions will be performed for acute limbs. However, um, it's very hard to go past a classic open surgical procedure, um, especially when time is critical? I think, you know,
0: apart from being um, too rigid in either camp as in open versus endovascular, I think acute limb ischemia really is really a hybrid condition that really benefits quite significantly from hybrid revascularization techniques. Uh, you know, quite often um, we encounter problems that would benefit from open surgery, in particular, removal of large thrombotic core embolic burden. But we then also find a number of underlying lesions that require treatment, and also establishing that on table you've got good outflow is, of course, important for any um, uh, revascularization. The other thing I've done a bit more recently, Yogi, which I've uh, found actually really quite helpful, is um, for popliteal emboli, um, doing an over-the-wire embolectomy from the groin. So in this situation, I basically um, uh, cut down on the common femoral and place a sheath into the SFA open and then sequentially embolize the tibial vessels. And the problem I always used to have doing a popliteal embolectomy is never knowing without doing an angio and closing the vessel whether you've got suitable outflow and I found that that's actually eliminated that problem for me quite significantly so I mean the last few months um, the teal emboli I've had to deal with I've basically sorted out through the groin via and over the wire uh, thrombectomy and then basically each time you trawl you just do another run and you can see whether you need to keep going or not and you can carefully just select each tibial vessel to embolectomize them
1: yeah look I think um that that is definitely um, the advantage of our specialty and the ability to perform these interventions in a hybrid suite. That um, the more classic procedure of doing the tibial uh has been is it has evolved so that it can be performed in an over the wire situation, um, uh, and as you suggested, um, limiting the potential morbidity associated with. Um, the dissection involved though a groin dissection in itself is not without its own complications
0: yeah but i think uh yeah the popliteal dissections obviously aren't um completely low morbid as well you know when once you start stripping off cilius you do tend to encounter a lot of veins that are really quite pesky afterwards in terms of you anticoagulate the patient afterwards, they start walking, the cilia veins start bleeding, and it's not uncommon to then need to take the patient back for a,
1: a calf washout. Yeah, the use of thrombolysis, especially with acute limb presentations, presents its own challenges. And in my institution, um, uh, we really only have access to catheter-directed lysis. Um, and also, this is typically done through the interventional radiology service. Though occasionally, uh, we have provided that service in significantly acute presentations. Saying that, though, in my own personal practice, um, the role of lysis is typically reserved um, in a rather for two a leg, sort of the acute subcritical ischemic leg or in a situation where uh, surgical options are poor and runoff vessels appear occluded on imaging, particularly in the context of a popliteal artery aneurysm uh, with no demonstrable outflow on angiography at all. Um, and as such, lysis could potentially play a role in terms of opening up some distal targets prior to formal reconstructive surgery. Um Lysis in itself is fickle Um, and Sam, you and I both know that whilst it can significantly improve perfusion to the lower limb, it doesn't come without its own potential risk of complication. And the major one that we always counsel patients on is the major risk of bleed, which is about 1% uh, from any major organ system within the body itself, which is an enormous risk in itself However, in a good risk patient, once they've appropriately been counselled, this does not seem unreasonable. However, uh, it's still a frightening consideration.
0: Uh, in my practice,
1: um, basically for any
0: embolus, I don't really use lysis. I think you know you can do an embolectomy fairly quickly in most instances for a straightforward, especially if it's common femoral and the patient's slim, you can often do a fairly prompt embolectomy. Um, and then you don't have all those risks from lysis, such as bleeding, renal dysfunction in particular. Um, in my mind, I think where lysis really plays a role is either acute stent occlusion. I think it definitely has a role there, and that's or acute uh, bypass occlusion. Um, particularly if it's a prosthetic graft, I think um, in my practice at least that's
1: where it uh, mostly plays a role. And uh, and mm. I guess just to be very specific, Sam, for a a, a marginally threatened as opposed to an extremely threatened leg.
0: Yeah, that's right. If the leg is if the leg, or well, basically you need the leg to survive the time it takes to lice the patient. If I think that the leg is not going to be okay in 24 hours, then I think lysis is really off the cards. Um, you know, I'm not a frequent NJJT user um, and I couldn't guarantee in my hands that I could reperfuse a leg in less than 24 hours with NJJT successfully and confidently. Mm-hmm. So in in most cases, if it's a Rutherford 2B leg, leg is obviously threatened, then I would be pushing the patient
1: towards open surgery. Yeah. And I think that's a very good reflection on the fact that you've got to be comfortable with the technique that you're wishing to undertake as that's then going to determine how you what you rely on, and especially with your acute presentations. Yep. Have you have
0: you ever encountered the bypass yogi that's um, a vein graft that's certainly gone down with time? Patience maybe is developed a recurrence of their rest pain. how would you deal with um, that situation?
1: Yeah, look, uh, I think in the context where someone's had um, an a autologous bypass graft, um, the challenges, and that's subsequently included, the challenges in that situation, of course, is the site of harvest, and particularly if they've had contractual lane harvest, Um This adds much more complexity to the situation. But in short, um, I would typically reserve their revascularization on the basis of one failing conservative approaches first and really trying to reserve any form of revascularization um, uh, in the context of tissue loss more so than anything else especially in the scenario that you describe, it's very hard to know the time frame in which all of this has occurred. Um, and especially if there's been a progressive decline in the graft, um, this may reflect or especially if the patient's symptoms are, are, are over a longer time course, it's going to be much more difficult to ascertain the, the viability of trying to reconstruct that or embolectomize or salvage the graft in the short term. Um, so, In the particular scenario that you presented to me, I'd look to manage them conservatively, um, in particular with someone with a rest pain, ensuring that their analgesia was appropriately managed to see how they went because their next option may potentially be uh, a much more complex, not only reconstruction, but also some hybrid um, option with vein or prosthetic to try and um, revascularize their lower limb.
0: The reason I bring this up is um, due to a recent experience, but I think with these vein grafts that go down late, there seems to be, in my mind at least, two sort of groups, but I'm sure they're a spectrum. I think there are vein grafts that slowly stenose and the whole graft is underfilled due to a critical stenosis somewhere or the significant near internal hyperplasia and the whole graft's quite stenotic. And actually, the occluded graft is not full of thrombus at all. But then there are some that do thrombose and do have a significant thrombus burden. I'm not really sure, you know, clinically how to tell the difference or even on angiography. Um, one thing I suspect is if you think there's a critical proximal stenosis, then the whole graft could be just collapsed distally. And in those situations, I, I do think you can intervene on them uh purely with balloon angioplasty or stenting to salvage them without actually having to lyse the patient. Have you ever encountered that particular situation or have you had similar thoughts yourself, Yogi? Yeah, look. Or do you think that's just pure madness and uh, (laughs) I'm being a bit ballsy trying to balloon a a occluded graft?
1: (laughs) You'd hope that your surveillance program is picking up on some of these um, high...
0: Well, that's interesting because you because yeah. Well, you see, okay. Well, you look at the completion angiogram, you go, okay, that vein looked like crap from the get go. Or you look at um, you look at uh, there's surveillance duplex, and you see, okay, there was a fairly tight critical stenosis there, or there's recurrent problems at the top. That's probably the issue yeah. that's caused the graph to go down.
1: Oh, look, I Broadly speaking, I think you, you can try and do whatever you can to resurrect a graft. And I have most definitely been involved in long um, femoral popliteal bypass graft recanalization with self-expanding stints in the past as well. Um, so I think in short, you do what you must to try and keep a patient's limb going, especially especially in the CLTI presentations when they do occur Um there's, there's no there's no easy answer. But at the end of the day, all of this is a risk-benefit discussion with the patient and also determining what they're fit for um, when it comes to it.
0: I think um, the other one I've seen, Yogi, and this is a bit uh, off-piste, but uh, acute graft- You occlusion. like to go off-piste. Uh, I know. <laughs> Graft-traversed uh, and uh, Vibarn basically placed <laughs> through graft- And uh, existing bypass uses a channel basically to revascular. And look, I think, and the couple of those that I've seen floating around have stayed running for some time. So, yeah, uh, an an option to keep up your sleeve. As
1: as you remember, Sam, we had a great line during our fellowship study, which was situational perfusion benefit. Um, and you do whatever you can to ensure perfusion, and this may be a transitory thing or a longer-term thing, but it is whatever is required to help heal the patient's current acute issue, which is the challenge.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, And I think the final thing to say here, Sam, is prognostically acute limb ischemia in itself uh, doesn't bode well. And despite active intervention, unfortunately, the outcome can sometimes and often is poor and um, can also reflect, like you mentioned earlier, uh, really a manifestation of an end-of-life presentation. More commonly, we're seeing it in uh, much more elderly patients who are multicomorbid or high-risk patients. Um, and really, it comes down to really a best risk-benefit discussion as to whether operative intervention versus conservative non-operative management versus palliation is the appropriate step forward. At the end of the day, um, the management of acute limbic is dynamic and each patient needs really an assessment um, in terms of the best way forward based on uh, their overall um, risk factors, but also then past medical history, as that will help determine their fitness for surgery. Um, and Sam, it's a, Process of trial and error, but the beauty of the practice of what we do in vascular surgery is that we get the options of using um, hybrid surgical procedures to be able to provide holistic care to patients.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, again, like many of our topics, we could just <laughs> go on about acute limb ischemia all day and talk about various cases we've encountered, but uh, certainly it's a spectrum of presentation and a spectrum of. Uh, patients involved and um, although you know you can compartmentalize it as much as you like and uh, with a Rutherford classification really at the end of the day all the treatments need to be individualized um, in terms of the degree of ischemia the degree of fitness for surgery and then the options available to us in terms of hybrid open or endovascular
1: yeah absolutely and this is um, especially for those uh, out there who are listening to our podcast and trying to get a feel for what vascular surgery involved. Sam, you've hit it on the nail. Which is the really the armamentarium is so broad in terms of how you can approach these problems. and we're very fortunate to be able to do it with both open and percutaneous techniques.
0: Thanks, Yogi. That was great. And I guess I'll see you next week. Thanks, Sam Farah, the Tibial Hunter. Appreciate it. Oh, the car that's going to stick. Okay. Yeah. See ya,
1: Yagi. Bye. <laughs>